to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. America is now at a pivotal moment in our history that may define the future in ways we never envisioned before. And the outcome of this historical moment is likely to determine the path that this country takes for generations. We are at an historical crossroads, my friends, and to paraphrase the words of the American poet Robert Frost, the path that we decide to take as a nation will make all the difference. So today, I want to spend the next hour talking with you, mostly, about what the intersection of COVID-19 and the murder of George Floyd mean to America and how it's likely to evolve as we move forward. The shock of the COVID-19 pandemic on human society was debilitating for most of the world. It shut down entire countries, even continents, and it continues to affect the way we live, the way we socialize, and the way we plan our futures. Then, just as we were about to reopen America after months of being quarantined in our homes, and before we even began to really recover, to begin to recover, a white cop in Minneapolis murdered an unarmed black man named George Floyd, and the country erupted in anger and sorrow. People burst from their homes. They burst from their homes. And Americans of every color took to the streets in total disregard of shutdowns and quarantines with or without masks and with absolutely no concern about social distancing and demanded an end to the indifference and the contempt for the civil rights of black Americans. This is a thorny and a very sensitive issue because being black in the United States has never been easy. The latent bigotry that has carried over through the years has been damaging in many, many ways. For George Lloyd, being black probably cost him his life. Being black in the face of anti-black bigotry has hindered the advancement of black Americans in every area of life. And it has led to a phenomenon which I call the new racism. So let's talk about that for a little bit. What is the new racism? It's racism as we know it, but in reverse. It's racism by black people against white people. Racism against white people, even by white people, on behalf of black America. And to tell you the truth, I don't understand it any better than I understand the old racism. I was born white. I have always been white. It wasn't my fault. It just happened. My mother was white. My father was white. Their mothers and fathers were white too. Their ancestors came from Europe at a time when almost everyone else there was white. When Hitler came to power in the early 1930s, he decided that the only people who were worth living had white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes, even though he himself had black hair and dark eyes. 
So if you were so endowed with white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes, you were a member of what he called the Aryan race and superior in every way. Unless, of course, you were Jewish or gay or disabled or Catholic or a host of other things that Hitler didn't like. In that case, you were dispensable as well. Even if you were blonde-haired and blue-eyed, it wasn't enough. And Hitler systematically murdered, slaughtered, 12 million people he didn't like in order to prove his point and to purify the human race. That was his gig. Many of my relatives died in Hitler's Holocaust, in the slaughter of the Jews of Riga in the winter of 1941. 25,000 Jewish residents, the entire population of the city of Riga, Latvia, were dragged from their homes and taken to the Rumbula forest outside of the city, where a massive pit had been dug. They were forced to strip naked in the brutal cold of that Latvian winter and to stand shivering at the edge of that massive pit. Then they were shot where they stood and their bodies were left to rot in the mass grave of Rumbula Forest in Latvia in that winter of 1941. Now, American history tells a different story, and it's also a story of persecution and prejudice. It began with the first African slaves who were brought to the colonies in 1619 when a privateer called the White Lion brought 20 kidnapped and enslaved Africans to the British colony of Jamestown, Virginia. The history of slavery in America is horrible. It's ugly and it's cruel. And it went on for 250 years. The very idea of owning another human being is sickening. And yet, that was still considered acceptable in many parts of this country in 1776 when our nation was founded and for nearly 270 more years. There are countless stories of the brutal treatment of African slaves by their white masters. And these stories are too horrific and far too numerous to relate here. But they remain a testimony to the legitimate history of the black experience in America. And not unlike the enslavement and torture and murder of six million Jews by Hitler's Nazi regime, the enslavement and torture and murder of black men, women, and children in our own country must always be remembered, always, so that it will never be repeated. Never. Then came the Civil War in 1861. It was a terrible war, bloody and deadly, brother against brother. Most wars are, of course, ugly, bloody, and deadly. But four years later, in 1865, the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution abolished slavery in the United States. And the 14th and 15th Amendment defined citizenship and prohibited the denial of the right to vote based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Well, that's all well and good up to a point, except... There were unwritten laws in the South that came to be known as Jim Crow laws. They were the body of state and local laws, official and unofficial, 
that enforced segregation, the continued separation of Americans based on race, despite the amendments to the Constitution. For example, most public places throughout the South were segregated. That meant that black Americans, whom the Southerners called colored, among other derogatory things, could only patronize these places as second-class citizens, if at all. There were colored-only motels, laundromats, drinking fountains, public restrooms, restaurants, schools, even churches, and much, much more throughout the South. Black citizens were humiliated wherever they went. Oh, they could vote, but the voting lists were maintained by race. And in many places, voters had to pass a so-called literacy test in order to be able to receive a ballot. For white voters, there might be a simple question like, who was the first president of the United States? That was easy. But for black voters, it could be a question requiring an explanation of a complicated point of law. The point was that if you didn't pass, you couldn't vote. Jim Crow prevailed throughout the South, officially and unofficially, for another 80 years after emancipation, until the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That law ended segregation in public places and banned employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It was a big step forward, but it still wasn't enough because the hidden prejudices of generations continued to linger in the hearts and minds of men and women who had been taught from the cradle that it was better to be white. There are many black Americans who have nevertheless succeeded in almost every field of endeavor in spite of every obstacle that was put in their path, and some have become leaders in industry, commerce, education, theaters, and government. Success rarely came easily to black Americans, men and women, but many of the barriers to employment and wealth were nevertheless overcome by black Americans who reached success through sheer will and hard work. Racial prejudice was clearly not a deal-breaker for some, who managed to succeed in spite of it, but it certainly made it harder for most black Americans to break out of the cycle of poverty and dead-end jobs. In 2018, for example, the number of people in America living below the poverty level was 38.1 million, or 11.8% of the population. Of that number, nearly 21% were black and only 10% were white. The disparity becomes even clearer when you count all the people of color, including Native Americans at 25.4%, Latinos at 17.6%, and Asians at 10.1%. But there's a different picture when you look at the changes in the representation of minority groups in Congress. Fifty years ago, nearly the entire membership of the United States Congress was composed of white men. But in the 115th Congress, which was elected in 2016, African Americans made up 10% of the representatives. Latinos made 9%. And Asian Americans made up 3%. And in the 116th Congress, who were elected 
Two years ago, in 2018, 12% are now African Americans and 10% are Latinos. So things are changing and people of color are playing an increasingly larger role in our government as they should be. But it's still not enough as we can see now on the streets of America. More is never enough because the injustices perceived and real keep coming. That's a state of life. It always has been and it probably always will be. The murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of four rogue cops set off a chain reaction that has electrified America and unleashed the spontaneous combustion of peaceful demonstrations around the country and a massive storm of violent riots and destruction in America's cities. The streets of our major cities have been filled with peaceful protesters expressing their anger and stating their demands. But there were also violent rioters looting and burning and massively destroying the property of others. No sooner had the peaceful demonstrations gotten started than they were overshadowed and then hijacked by radical groups like Antifa who used the opportunity to descend on the cities to loot and burn private property and public property all over the country. But these riots were not like previous riots. Like the long hot summer in 1967 when 159 different race riots, almost all African American, erupted across the country. Or the riots that broke out in South Central Los Angeles in 1982 after the exoneration of L.A. cops and the brutal beating of Rodney King. Those riots broke out in the black neighborhoods of our large cities, and the destruction was carried out by black residents in their own neighborhoods. Those riots that happened in Newark and Harlem and in the ghettos of many large cities throughout the United States, those riots hurt the people who lived in those neighborhoods more than anyone else. Those riots were carried out by the angry residents of those and other black neighborhoods on their own neighbors and on the properties of non-resident landlords and on their brown-skinned neighbors from Asia. And no one was more hurt by their destruction than their own neighbors and even their own families. But the demonstrations and riots that followed the murder of George Floyd were different. The demonstrators didn't stay in their own neighborhoods, but went right into the center of their cities. They linked arms, carried signs, and knelt together to remember and honor George Floyd. And they demanded change in the policing of America. And then there were the rioters, the people who looted and burned and destroyed. These rioters were different. This is not random. If you look at the patterns of behavior in each city that they attacked, it was the same. It took America's history of riots and looting to a new level because even the methods of rioting, looting, and destroying were different this time. This was rioting on steroids. This was extreme rioting and looting. These were hooligans and professional agitators who got paid to loot stores and set fires. They're thugs and hoodlums and vandals who are making good money 
by making victims of other people and who simply didn't care. Their actions had nothing to do with George Floyd or race relations. For them, this wasn't about race and it wasn't about civil rights and fairness. It was about power and it was about anarchy and it was about taking control away from the supporters of law and order. And in the end, it was about fundamentally changing America. The rioters and looters are mostly gone now, but the damage will remain for a very long time, and it will be very costly to repair. The looting was part of a well-designed program whose whole purpose was to take advantage of this emotional crisis and create chaos in an already traumatic situation. Now, I'm going to take a short break, but when I come back, we're going to talk about this some more. A lot more. Don't go away. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L dot com slash sleep. Now, before the break, I was talking about the rioting that temporarily overtook the peaceful demonstrations after the death of George Floyd. And it was much more than just rioting. It was wanton destruction and it was organized. I'll tell you how I know. I have little doubt, because most of the intelligence that I have received supports this, that behind this rampant lawlessness is George Soros. He's famous for this, and he's done it many times before. He hides behind his vast and complex network of organizations, but he was the power and the money behind the riots in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 and in Baltimore in 2015, and in the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011, although he denies it all. Antifa is a virtual organization, seemingly without leaders, that includes in its operations the procurement and distributions of weapons, explosives, and other tools of destruction and anarchy. They use operational tactics that are intended to divide and weaken police assets. For example, they instruct their followers on how to infiltrate protests and demonstrations and how to become so threatening that they tie up the greatest number of law enforcement assets. And while they're doing that, other groups of dedicated looters and arsonists are moving rapidly from target to target. And this year, their tactics exceeded everything they did in the past. Occupy Wall Street was largely peaceful and it went on for months. The riots in Ferguson and Baltimore were much more violent because groups of thugs from gangs in other cities were brought in from outside 
to loot and destroy. But these were still largely limited to the black neighborhoods in these cities. This year, following the killing of George Floyd, the riots moved into the affluent centers of major cities all over the country. This was a big change. These riots were not random and they were not spontaneous. Antifa was looking for a trigger, any trigger, that would enable them to take their anarchy to the next level. This has been planned for quite a long time. The killing of George Floyd was that trigger, and they were ready with extreme anarchy. In Fairfield, California, rioters used heavy construction equipment to break down the doors of a Best Buy store. In other cities, caravans of cars were used to roam around to systematically search for targets, and many of the rioters were heavily armed. In Northern California, one group of rioters stole more than 70 premium cars from a dealership near San Francisco in one night. 70 luxury cars required 70 drivers. So this was a well-planned and well-executed act of major theft. When sold on the black market, this theft alone represented the padding of their bank accounts by millions of dollars for Antifa. In New York City, hundreds of stores up and down Broadway, 5th Avenue and 6th Avenue, and in Soho were vandalized and destroyed. And some of the looters were pulling up to these stores in luxury SUVs, including one group of looters who were driven up to their target in a $350,000 Rolls-Royce. In one city, teenage boys were given bricks by men who told them to throw them at police. And there are photographs of young men dressed in black, wearing masks, and carrying sledgehammers on their backs and guns in their belts. The sledgehammers were shiny clean and brand new, and so were their backpacks. These men didn't come to demonstrate peacefully. They came to smash and loot and destroy. So when, on May 31st, President Trump designated Antifa a domestic terrorist organization, he changed the game. This designation allows the government to pursue every aspect of Antifa's operation, including its methods, its sources of funding, how it plans and executes its activities, and much more. And it gives the government the full force of the law to prosecute them. Terrorists require supporters, recruits, safe havens, money, supplies, weapons, and intelligence. It doesn't take much for a robust terror group to wage an all-out war against a target they are determined to destroy. They can take advantage of the continuing racial divide in America that still exists on many levels of our society. And because many black Americans, particularly young black Americans, have found comfort and strength in casting themselves as victims and all white people as aggressors and the victimizers, the job of Antifa is made even easier. The extreme looting that we have seen with heavy construction equipment and high-priced luxury cars delivering the looters to their targets is a preview of coming attractions if we let it happen. If they will sink to such depths now, what will they be willing to do if things really get out of control in this country.
And here's some good news. Maybe the president's declaration that Antifa is a domestic terrorist organization and subject to the laws regarding terrorism may have had some effect because the violent riots have suddenly died down, at least for the time being. And the peaceful demonstrations have taken their place as the centerpiece of the current story, and they're getting stronger. What began as an outcry against the inexcusable murder of a black man by a white cop in Minneapolis became a nationwide movement against the racism that has plagued black Americans for generations. And it's a movement with legs, and it's gaining more traction every day. But there's a new hiccup in the story, and we need to pay attention to it. Within the movement that has fueled the peaceful demonstrations, there is a growing outcry against the police and a demand to defund and disband police forces in cities around the country. The same police forces that keep our cities safe. And here lies the problem. New York City is facing a $10 billion shortfall in the revenues it expected from taxes this year, due mostly to the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic. When Mayor Bill de Blasio announced his plan for, quote, painful, unquote, cuts to the city services, his 2021 budget froze new teacher hires, limited environmental initiatives, and completely eliminated critical social services, such as the Summertime Youth Employment Program. But with all that, the $6 billion budget of the New York Police Department was not cut. Until now, that is because now the mayor is facing enormous pressure from the demonstrators on his city streets. And they want action now. What they want is for de Blasio to defund the New York Police Department. They want him to get rid of the police. Can you imagine New York City without police? How safe would the streets be then? But this is just the beginning. In Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti announced that he plans to cut $100 million to $150 million from the LAPD's $1.86 billion annual budget and to reinvest that money plus another $100 million that he's taken from other departments into the black community. In his words, quote, we all have to step up and say, what can we sacrifice, unquote. Garcetti's 2021 plan originally called for a $120 million increase to the LAPD. Other city services, including affordable housing, traffic safety, and gang prevention programs were set for cuts due to the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. California activists have come up with something they call the People's Budget, which would devote 43% of the budget Two, and this is a quote, universal aid and crisis management, unquote, whatever that means. That would include affordable housing, services for LA's huge homeless population, and public safety and emergency responders, whatever that means, because they're talking about cutting the police budget. According to the people's budget, and I quote, law enforcement and policing would be reduced to less than 6% of the total budget. So here we have the two largest cities in America talking about slashing its budget for law enforcement, and that's not the end of it. 
Now the growing number of demonstrators are calling for city governments to totally defund their police forces. And the cities like New York City, L.A., Minneapolis, and others are actually considering this. Are they kidding? Who will keep the city streets safe when the police force has been disbanded? Who thinks this is a good idea? Well, Brian Fallon, for one, who was spokesman for Hillary Clinton and Eric Holder, he's calling for defunding police. And so is Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Hollywood stars who live in million-dollar homes and have 24-7 protection, and the Huffington Post and the New York Times and on and on. Which brings me to another subject which is closely related to this. Police brutality, particularly against black citizens, which is what started this latest round of open conflict between black Americans and law enforcement. Yes, there is a problem with police brutality in police forces everywhere, not just in the United States, not just in our cities, but all around the world. George Floyd was one of the latest victims of police brutality, but he was far from alone. New York police seem to be the worst, judging from all the stories. One Buffalo cop was caught on video pushing a 75-year-old man to the ground, where he hit the back of his head and bled profusely, while the other cops just walked right by him. One officer started to bend over to help him, and another officer pulled him back, grabbed his shoulder, pulled him back, and they walked on as the man lay bleeding on the sidewalk. Later in an interview, they called this man lying on the ground bleeding. They called him an agitator, as though that made it all okay. It didn't, of course. Not at all. Maybe he was part of a group that was harassing the police. But that's beside the point. And in another incident, unbelievably, a Seattle cop, just a week after George Floyd was killed, a Seattle cop put his knee on the neck of a man he had just apprehended for looting. And he had to be pulled off him by another cop. And the stories go on and on. So what makes those cops different from the looters who knock over anyone who stands in their way and attack the disabled and the elderly? Not much, in my opinion, except for the degree of violence, but certainly not for the intent. I have a theory that for some people who might be good people at home, kind people in their private lives, but when they put on that uniform, Something changes in their personality. I've seen it happen to people for whom I have great respect, or did, until I saw that. Because when they became cops, they also became meaner and less tolerant of normal human behavior. I'm sure this isn't universal, but I'm equally sure that it does happen to some people. And these may very well be the cops who become aggressive with unarmed civilians for whom they show disrespect, intolerance, and sometimes downright cruelty. So here's my two cents regarding police brutality. The first thing, and it's obvious, is that it has to stop. But defunding and disbanding the police department is not the answer. In our country, there must be law and order, or our country won't work. Our freedoms will disappear, and anarchy will take over. So defunding the police, disbanding the police, 
It's the worst possible idea for this country. Our republic was founded on the concept of liberty and individual responsibility. And every American is guaranteed equal opportunity under the law, regardless of race, religion, gender, and profession. Our police, no less than ourselves, must respect and honor that. Total police authority is not the answer, as we have seen. But cops are human beings, and they have their weaknesses and their failings. And like the rest of us, some are really good people, compassionate and caring. But there are also some who are conceited and bigots, and some who are prone to violence, and some who are just mean. So the answer lies in coming to grips with the problem of how the police will deal effectively with the people they have sworn to serve, the people in their cities or towns. Because when this relationship breaks down, as it seems to have done in our largest cities, then something has to be done to correct it. In my view, our policemen and women would benefit greatly through a program of retraining to remind them of why they serve and whom they serve. The uniform does not bestow on them unlimited authority or power. It should command respect, but only if they earn it by serving the community and being the agents for keeping it safe, not making it more dangerous. Our police are up against something else today. Today, the language of America is changing, has changed a lot. The way we speak to each other, the way we address the issues that confront us is different from what it was when I was growing up, surely. Just listen to the demonstrators on the street, men, women, it doesn't matter. By and large, their language is rude, inarticulate, full of F-bombs, and most of all, demanding change of the most dramatic kind without any responsible understanding of what the consequences of what they're demanding will be and how they will work. And it is very interesting that the most vocal, the most radical demands are coming from people living in the states and cities that are by far the most liberal states and cities in the country. New York City, Minneapolis, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, and where the restrictions relating to the social response to COVID-19 were the most severe. We need to discuss this at some point, and we will, but not today because it deserves some real time on its own. But it's just worth noting and giving some thought to what it means to us as individuals and to our country. So I guess the sum of what I think about the move to eliminate the police is that it's not only a terrible idea for the obvious reasons, but that it is irresponsible and reckless. And that if this movement to defund and disband our police is allowed to take control of the way we run our cities, it will not only destroy them, it will destroy our nation with them, and we will drift into a sea of lawlessness and anarchy. Law and order and the infrastructure to support them is essential in a free society. Benjamin Franklin once said about our form of government that it was a republic if we can keep it. Today we stand at a pivotal junction in American history. The sides are drawn. Will we be able to keep our republic, our liberty? What we do in the next weeks and months will decide that, and that will make all the difference.
Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when I come back, we will have some more discussion of this and a couple of other things that I think you will find very interesting. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older. Until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Several years ago, during the 2016 election cycle, black students were demanding safe spaces where they could hang out with people like themselves, other black students. They felt the need to isolate themselves from the people they thought were victimizing them, the people they called privileged, the white people. They felt safer when they segregated themselves. And in one fell swoop, they erased all of the progress against segregation that their parents and grandparents had fought so hard to win only 60 years ago. They felt intimidated by the presidential election between two old white people, Hillary Clinton, at least, was a woman and a Democrat, so she was okay. But Donald Trump was a white man, a Republican, and he didn't mince words. He spoke his mind. So he was terrifying. On one college campus, black students complained that a Trump campaign message, his name, Trump, spray-painted on the risers of a flight of stairs, was so intimidating that they demanded that it be removed immediately. Candidate Trump didn't really talk about race very much. He talked about the economy and creating jobs and making America great again. That, for these young people that the right called snowflakes, was absolutely terrifying. And when Donald Trump was elected, the anti-Trump movement went into high gear and wrapped itself around accusations of phony crimes and what the Democrats called racism. It wasn't racism, it was anything but racism. But like the accusations of guilty crimes, the adjective stuck with the radical left who supported it, and with the mainstream media who repeated it, over and over again. 
So what is this new racism in 2020? Well, it's the newest weapon against free speech in which any comment can be construed as racist and the word is so overused that it has almost lost its meaning. But if you're accused of racism, it carries a powerful wallop. Once it was considered racist if you didn't like black people just because of the color of their skin. That was ugly and irrational, and more than anything, it was deeply hurtful. It isn't gone. Old prejudices die hard, but it's a lot better than it used to be. Today, you are racist if you are a white policeman, or a white politician, or a white man. You're a racist if you support President Trump. You're a racist if you have white skin and blue eyes because that makes you privileged just because you are white. And that makes you a racist. At some point, we Americans have to get past this. Last week, I was talking to a close relative who considers himself a liberal and lives in a liberal state. We don't always agree on a lot when it comes to politics, but it was nice to be able to have a conversation with him about the situation in America today. And I was actually surprised that we agreed on more than we had ever agreed on before. But we still came to a point where the conversation got stuck, and so we ended it. But not before I said, you know, it's good we can talk about this stuff, and it's okay if we disagree. This is America. And so it is. And I pray that it will always be possible to continue to agree and disagree and still be friends for a long, long time. I was surprised by our conversation because even though we disagreed, it was civil, and despite our differences of opinion, we were able to share our ideas. But sadly, I think this is increasingly rare today. To put it plainly, in today's America, speech is no longer free. It comes with a price. If it is not socially acceptable speech, if it disagrees with what the left decides is acceptable, it is racist. It is hate speech and must be condemned. And if you post it on Facebook or Twitter and it goes against the sentiments of the left to the extent that they complain, it may well be removed and your account may be closed. This isn't a laughing matter. It's a serious blow to free speech that we once took for granted. We don't need to agree with each other. We can even disagree dramatically. But we have the right to our own opinions, and we have the right to say them. That right is guaranteed by the First Amendment, and we are rapidly losing it completely. It will be a sad day for America when one opinion is the only one that is allowed to lead the discussion. As I said before, we need to get past this point. We need to be able to communicate with each other freely. We don't have to agree, but we do have to share our ideas and we do have to listen. There can't always be only one side of the discussion. In fact, there is no discussion when that happens. And it is happening today, right in front of our eyes. We need to start speaking to each other again. But at the moment, it looks like this is going to be very, 
difficult. Okay, now I want to tell you about a couple of other things that have been coming to me from my sources on subjects we have discussed before, North Korea and China. And these are big stories. Let's start with North Korea. Back on April 29th on the Friedman Report, I spoke to you about the strange disappearance of Kim Jong-un. You know, Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of North Korea, the pathological hedonist and cruel dictator. And I told you then that Kim Jong-un hadn't been seen since April 11th. And when on April 15th, North Korea celebrated the 108th birthday of Kim Il-sung, his grandfather and founder of North Korea, Kim Jong-un was nowhere to be found. That he should miss this celebration was simply unheard of. And he also missed the Army Day celebrations on April 25th, another event that he was certain to attend, but didn't. I also told you in that same program that he was reported to have had what they called a cardiovascular procedure, and that it was reported through the intelligence community that there had been complications. Well, actually, they said it had been botched. Now, we know that Kim was known to be a heavy drinker, chain smoker, and a binge eater, and he's thought to have weighed about 280 pounds. So Kim was rumored to have had a reversal in his fortune, and intelligence reports indicated that he might be in a vegetative state or dead. In that same program, I told you about 32-year-old Kim Yo-jung, who is not only the sister of Kim Jong-un, she is the only close blood relative to him who might be in line to take his place should he die. And she was also one of his most trusted advisors. We saw her in Seoul, South Korea, at the 2018 Winter Olympics, where the liberal press fawned all over her and even called her the Ivanka Trump of North Korea. (laughs) She's hardly North Korea's Ivanka Trump. In fact, she is secretly called the Black Widow. It has been rumored that after she has grown tired of her latest lover, she makes love one last time and then dispatches him with a long hat pin in the back of his neck. The Black Widow. Where Kim Jong-un is well known for his insatiable appetite for food, liquor, and women, particularly very young women, she is known for her unbridled ambition at all costs. She is thought to have played a significant role in helping Kim Jong-un take over from his father. He was not next in line, his older brother was, but he became his father's successor. So the latest report is that Kim Jong-un seems to be out of the picture, either in a coma or deceased. And Kim Yo-jung has consolidated her power, as I said I thought she would, and is poised to take control of the government in North Korea. This wasn't a foregone conclusion for two reasons. The first was, of course, that we didn't know if Kim was dead or if he would come back. When I said that he was thought to have three body doubles who could replace him for public appearances, 
I was told I was a conspiracy theorist. No, there were three body doubles and we got to see at least two of them. But we never saw the real Kim Jong-un again. The second reason that there was some doubt about her succession is that the leadership of the North Korean Politburo was fervently, rabidly against having a woman in power. They have said that they will never accept a woman in power to rule the country. But they didn't count on Kim Yo-jong as an adversary. Last April, I told you this, quote, She is the first in line, and it is not clear that she isn't willing to fight hard for the top leadership position. And she is, as I have said, brutal and will no doubt do whatever it takes, including kill her adversaries, to achieve her goals. Her brother, father, and grandfather were guilty of the murder of millions and with the most extraordinary cruelty. So there is no reason to expect that she would rule any other way. In fact, there may be good reason to expect that she could take that cruelty to a new and more horrible level than they did. And that, of course, means that, as next in succession, she will do whatever is necessary to seize the reins of power if Kim is no longer around. Unquote. And so, the intelligence that she has consolidated her power and is poised to take control of the government is neither far-fetched nor conspiracy theory. I have been told that within the next few weeks, we will hear the news of a new ruler in North Korea, and her name is Kim Yo-jong. Stay tuned. And our last story of the week is about China. You know, China that released the COVID-19 on the rest of the world and then lied about it, but brought life in hundreds of countries to a virtual standstill and was responsible for millions of infections and hundreds and thousands of deaths and the loss of livelihood for millions more? That China. Well, guess what they were doing while we were staying at home wearing masks, incessantly washing our hands and staying away from our parents, our siblings, our children, our friends, and our co-workers? By now, we all know that China was responsible for deceiving the world about how they infected millions of people with a new coronavirus that they developed in their Wuhan biolab and then lied about it. Meanwhile, rather than apologize or cooperate with the world in any way to rein in the pandemic, they were invading India with 5,000 troops across the border nine miles into India in the Ladakh region. They moved in, they set up their tents, and brought heavy equipment into territory that India considers to be its own. Last week, President Trump said that the United States is ready, willing, and able to mediate or arbitrate their now raging border dispute. This region, this border, is in the Himalaya Mountains and has been heavily militarized since 1962, when China began a short but bloody war with India over the region. And while China was doing that, they were also laying claim to Hong Kong, in breach of an agreement with the United Kingdom that should have been enforced for another 27 years. Hong Kong, which was a free market oasis in the communist China hell, and boasted of having the fourth largest stock exchange in the world, will now be part of China, 
ruled under Chinese communist law and the agreement with the UK be damned. And then there is the issue of Taiwan, the small island off the east coast of China that calls itself the Independent Republic of China, a name that the communist China refuses to accept. Taiwan is all that is left of the old Republic of China that ruled the land that we now know as China. Their government was established in 1911 after they overthrew the imperial dynasty and declared the Republic of China. They, in turn, were overthrown by the Chinese Communist Party and their government fled to the island of Taiwan where they declared the new Republic of China. In its simplest terms, Taiwan, or the Republic of China, claims it is independent, but China claims Taiwan as part of its territory and has convinced the United Nations of its sovereignty. Taiwan, therefore, has never been a part of the United Nations, and the World Health Organization has also refused to allow Taiwan to join. In fact, China has made it very clear that Beijing will never allow Taiwan to join any organization that requires statehood for membership. Nevertheless, President Tsai Ing-wen was successful in managing the COVID virus crisis, and that management stood out in stark relief to China's overwhelming epidemic. Taiwan had arguably the most successful approach to the virus of any country in the world. It acted very quickly to stop the virus at its gates. Out of a population of 13.5 million people, as of June 10th, the island had only 443 cases and only 7 deaths. China is greedy and ambitious. And after Mike Pompeo sent a congratulatory tweet to Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen when she was inaugurated to a second term, China was furious. They even threatened countermeasures against the United States. What Pompeo wrote, what got China so angry, was this. Congratulations to Dr. Tsai Ing-wen on the commencement of your second term as Taiwan's president. Taiwan's vibrant democracy is an inspiration to the region and the world. With President Tsai at the helm, our partnership with Taiwan will continue to flourish. Unquote. It doesn't take much, it seems, to get China's dander up. China, in fact, has much to atone for. But China is not very good at saying... I'm sorry. So wars are brewing on several fronts, and China is restless. Its economy is failing. It has badly damaged hundreds of countries around the world, sickened and killed millions of people, and yet it is being aggressive and confrontational. Where will this end? No one knows. But as China continues to stir the pot, Something is bound to happen, and sooner or later, we, the United States, will be involved. Because for China, there is no greater adversary than the United States of America. Well, we are out of time, my friends, and it's been a busy hour. Have a good week, stay healthy, stay safe, and come back again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.